This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. There are new episodes of the English Heritage Podcast every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe via your preferred platform to keep up to date. Now, this year, English Heritage are celebrating the many ways the past has shaped the nation. And this week, at a time when mobility is so restricted, we're looking back at when a new mode of transport changed life in England forever. Before Britain fell in love with the motor car, and long before the dawn of international flights to exotic destinations, there was this. The dawn of rail travel marked a new chapter in England's story. It opened up the landscapes and destinations like never before, for both business and pleasure. In the 21st century, travelling by train is one of the best ways to see the country, hear different accents and explore various locations. Well, joining me to discuss how the railways shaped England is Head Collections Curator Matt Thompson. Oh, thank you for having me, Charles. And it's nice to have you back as well, talking about iron again. Uh, Last time we talked about the Iron Bridge. This time we're talking about iron rails running along the ground. So I've got a similar subject going on here. Let's go back to how these rails were originally conceived. I understand that the use of railways goes back quite far. That's right. Of course, a lot of people think that the railways are very much a 19th century phenomenon. And of course, you know, they really began to flower in the 19th century and spread all all over the world. But some people have pointed back towards classical Greece and and Rome, where there's tantalising evidence of parallel grooves in, in road and trackways that would have accommodated the wheels of carts and wagons as they went along. And there's a counter-argument that says these are probably just made by the wear of hundreds and hundreds of carts over decades, if not centuries, that kind of wore these grooves into the surface of the road. And although on first glance they look a little bit like a tramway or possibly an early kind of railway, it's probably not the case that they were designed initially as such. But if we want to get to the real origins of the railways as we know them today, we need to go inside the mines of Central Europe. There's a fantastic book called De Re Metallica, published in 1556 by a chap called Agricola. And that is beautifully illustrated with woodcuts. And some of those woodcuts show the mines of what's now Germany and a curious system that they had for ensuring that they could push wooden trucks in the almost complete darkness of mine tunnels. And they would use two sets of parallel wooden planks that they would roll these wooden wheels of these wagons on. And they'd have a stout pin fixed to the underside of the truck. And the pin would lodge in the gap between these two parallel sets of planks. And that meant that it wouldn't go off the guideway. It would stay on the track. And so they could be pushed whilst fully loaded in the dark mines. And it didn't take a great deal, really, for these wooden plankways to come out from the entrance to the mine and actually start running a short distance over open ground. And really, there we have the origins of the railways as we know them today. So how do we get from these wooden plankways to iron-based rails? Well, it's quite, a, it's quite a leap, really. If we think that these images from Agricola are from the 1550s, in the middle of the 1560s, the Company of Mines Royal was established 
to extract ore from mines in the Lake District. Part of the company's work involved them bringing over workers from what's now Austria and southern Germany who had experience of using this type of wooden plankway and they established early railway systems in the Lake District in the 1560s, which is a a remarkable thing. But we find ourselves then moving relatively quickly into the early 1600s and we see with individuals such as Huntington Beaumont and others the development of wooden wagonways between about 1603 and 1605 we've got mentions of them at Woolerton in in Nottinghamshire and in the Seven Gorge in Shropshire not so very far from where I am now and indeed where the Iron Bridge would subsequently be built. Okay and how do we get to the point where these railways aren't just moving um, coal and ore. When do people start to feature as actual passengers on these railways? Of course, we do see in the 18th century in engravings of the wagonways in the northeast of England, in the coalfields of Durham and Northumberland, we do see that these wagons very often had an individual who sat on the back of the wagon and would operate the brake with their foot and that would either be a particularly exhilarating or terrifying ride, depending on your constitution. So the idea of people moving on railways was always kind of there, but sometimes it was perhaps as part of the overall function of the machinery. But when we get to the early 1800s, so in the early part of the 19th century, with the opening of what you could call the sort of first modern railway, the sort of first steam railway, the Stockton and Darlington in 1825, We see that on the opening day, on the 27th of September, that the train that ran the full length of the line carried a thousand people on 60 wagons. So even from the earliest days of the steam railways in the 19th century, there were people travelling on those trains, although sometimes they might have been sitting on top of a pile of coal as opposed to in a nice comfortable carriage. So the Stockton and Darlington Railway was the first, was it? First steam railway, yes. And uh, it was, of course, with Stevenson and uh, a locomotive called Locomotion. And it was an absolute turning point in the um, the development of the railways. Okay, Matt. So I'm getting a sense that this technology is starting to advance. What happens after the Stockton and Darlington Railway? Do other train companies start popping up? Of course, railways have been developing for some time within the kind of the coal fields and the industrial sector. But very quickly, Acts of Parliament are passed for the opening of the construction of of many other railway companies. So the Liverpool and Manchester, the first intercity railway, opens in 1830, which was a fantastic boon to business. Of course, people had to use the canals previously to ship goods, in particular cotton, from the ports in Liverpool to the cotton manufacturing city of, of, of Manchester. And the railway opened up business immensely and made it incredibly easy to move large quantities of material. We then have the London and Birmingham Railway in 1838. So if you think in 1838, they opened this sort of main line between London and, and the second city. They just missed opening in time for the coronation of Queen Victoria, which gives you a sense of how how early this railway was, that actually they were building the railway before Victoria was on the thrones. So this idea of railways being a purely Victorian phenomenon, actually, is something that we really should question. And of course, with the building of the London and Birmingham, it's very pertinent today because with the ideas around HS2, which of course is highly contentious in some quarters, effectively what you're looking at there is 
the rebuilding of the London and Birmingham Railway, almost two centuries on from its first construction. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, Obviously, I suppose in those days there was no sort of major planning laws and uh, environmental concerns like there are today. Presumably it was quite easy to just choose a path, do some blasting if necessary, build some tunnels and lay some track. Well, yes and no. Of course, in the early 19th century, you had to deal with far fewer landowners. Of course, huge tracts of land were owned by the gentry and aristocracy, and you could put a line through a whole swathe of landscape and actually only really need to sort of purchase the land off off a single individual or, or a small number of individuals, because we see around us now there's huge amounts of private ownership, a few fields here, a few fields there. But the actual process of getting your railway company an act of parliament to enable you to begin to raise the funds required for construction was quite complex and fraught with difficulty. Very often, even those companies that received an act of parliament often didn't go on to actually build a line at all because they ended up running out of money. The legal fees alone for gaining an act of parliament could be eye-watering and actually left some companies and their investors with very little money left at all. So how well received were these railways as they gradually spread out across the country? Well, in the early 19th century, it's, it's really interesting. A number of landowners very, very quickly, an industrialist, very, very quickly realised the benefit of this new form of technology. It would enable them to get their goods to market. It would enable them to access raw materials, huge numbers of advantages. But there were one or two landowners who were dead set against it, who felt that it might corrupt individuals, it might bring undesirables into the area. The Duke of Wellington was not keen at all. He he thought it would encourage the lower orders to go aimlessly wandering around the country, which of course in the early part of the 19th century wasn't to be desired because there was quite a bit of social upheaval at the time. And we see in the prints and paintings of the time that there was a great deal of anxiety around the impact the railways would have on the kind of country pastimes of the aristocracy, in particular hunting, fox hunting and stag hunting. There's real concern that this iron railway, this kind of permanent way that cuts right across the landscape, it it connects in one sense, it joins together towns and cities, but it divides on the other. And there were real concerns and there were a few instances of overzealous hunters ploughing across the tracks in pursuit of a fox and uh, encountering a train with the inevitable disastrous results. So there was a lot of anxiety. In addition to that, many farmers thought that the sound and the sight of the railway passing through their land would spook their cattle and they'd stop producing milk and it would frighten their horses. So there was quite a lot of worry, really, about the coming of the railways. There was a lot of anxiety about quite how modern this was. And I think it was probably compounded by the fact that relatively quickly the railways began to be constructed and built. So where they were only in specific landscapes and areas in the first instance, very quickly they came out of that and spread right across the country. So I think that there was a lot of worry. But really, even those who were dead set against the railway relatively quickly realised that there were huge benefits to be had and ended up one way or the other supporting them. You mentioned 1825 being the opening of the Stockton and Darlington Railway. So how quickly do the tracks spread out across the country? Really very quickly. So by, say, 1845, started a bit earlier and, and, and lasted a little bit longer, but by 1845, 
we're in the middle of what we'll call a railway mania, which is a sort of speculative bubble, a bit like the dot-com bubble that we all lived through. And we see in the years 1845, 46 and 47, hundreds of new railways receiving Acts of Parliament. And of course, the majority of these would never be built. They were speculative. They were based on a capital investment from lots and lots of small investors who probably didn't quite know what they were signing up for. But it gives an indication of how quickly the railways spread out. So those companies that survived the railway mania, and that was a, a real example of stress testing the market, really, because it was a completely unregulated market. And those companies that survived and continued after the railway mania really make up often the bulk of the railway network that we see today. There was a subsequent phase of building towards the final quarter of the 19th century, which really kind of filled in the gaps and then one or two other lines that came in after that. But I, I would say that towards the 1860s, 70s and 80s, we're looking at a really comprehensive rail network, in some cases, of course, more comprehensive then than it is now because of the closures that we experienced in the 1960s. I'm getting a sense of how it developed over those decades. But if we wind back the clock a little bit and go back to sort of the 1820s and 1830s, who was using the railways? Was it the preserve of the the wealthy? Was it a luxurious kind of jet set kind of lifestyle at that time? (laughs) The answer is not necessarily a a simple one. We do know there are examples of, in the 1840s and 1850s, sort of anecdotal examples of wealthy individuals who would have their chauffeurs in a, or their drivers in a, in a horse and carriage pull up to the station. They'd be very wealthy and they would be very happy to then pay the lowest possible fee and, and stand in an open carriage to make their journey from one town to another. But they were relatively expensive until 1844 and the Railway Regulation Act. And this established what became known as the parliamentary trains. And these trains would always carry third-class passengers. The charge would be no more than one penny a mile, and they'd have an average speed and an average amount of, of luggage that people could carry. And these parliamentary trains were that first step towards really beginning to open up train travel to the masses. And many people would use the railways to go and find work, or perhaps to travel to work on a very regular basis. So we do see that early on there's provision made for the railways to be open to as many people as possible. Of course, that isn't just a piece of kind of social good. That's also good business sense on the part of the railways themselves. So it's around the 1840s that rail travel becomes affordable for the working classes, people who would travel in second and third class. It's the start of a journey towards that. Of course, there'd been many people who wouldn't be able to, still wouldn't be able to travel on the, on the railway. And many people there would be travelling third in, in that case. Class on the railways is a really interesting topic on which a lot of ink has been spilt. And uh, some even say that the term class, as in a social distinction, a social hierarchy, comes from the use of the term within a railway context. Previously, I think it was associated more with the academic achievement within the universities. But class initially was about the speed of the train. So a first class train would be a train that went faster and stopped at fewer stations. But then very quickly there becomes a distinction between first, second and third in terms of the quality of the experience that you would 
buy a first class ticket on a train and it would be very, very comfortable and a third class ticket far less comfortable. But it led to a great deal of complexity because, of course, that meant that railway companies had to think very much about the numbers of people using their trains from each class. That's interesting how first was the train that was the fastest would travel from place to place and and third was the slow trundly one. Yes. But that did relatively quickly change because it was difficult to marshal the rolling stock, the trains themselves, to be able to do that. And you'd have to keep moving slower trains over to the side to allow fast ones to get. So there were a lot of challenges in doing it that way. It was impractical for for mass movement, basically. Well, yeah, and we quickly find that we then end up in a three-class system with first, second and third. And with it came all of the concomitants of the 19th century idea of social distinction and one's betters and what have you. And we see a really interesting example of, of how railways either took advantage of this or were taken advantage of by this when the Midland Railway in the later 19th century actually removed second class. So they just ended up with first and third. Ultimately, all the railway companies would follow suit in the end. But the idea... Not only did it simplify things in terms of marshalling the trains, you only had to have two types of passenger carriage as opposed to three, but also if you were a second-class traveller and they did away with second, you were faced with a tricky decision. Do you drop down a rung in the social pecking order and travel third from now on, or do you dip your hand in your pocket and step up and go first? And there's a chance that they were perhaps playing on the social anxieties of people. It did simplify things, though, for the railway companies, but it did present some challenges for individuals as to how they wanted to be perceived. And eventually third class falls away and is replaced by second, which we would see today, or standard, as they like to call it. Well, that's right. It's interesting. So today we've got first and and we have standard. And I think, of course, we try to move away from that notion of of social uh, hierarchy within, within the way people travel. But of course, the 19th century social distinction was hugely important. And so, of course, the classes of of the railway carriages really played into that and had a sort of a, a very important part in helping to consolidate that idea of social division. Going back to the actual nuts and bolts of travelling on a train. How did one do it in the 1830s, 40s, 50s? You would buy a ticket from the station, quite simply. I think really one of the interesting things is that in the later 19th century, we have to bear in mind that these were lots and lots of independent railway companies. There wasn't a single railway company. There was no nationalised railway system. It was a bit like the system that we have now in that that there's lots of different companies. But um, in 1922, so moving a little bit further forward in time, there were 123 different railway companies operating. So if you wanted to do a long journey, you would have to use the railways, the rails of several different companies. And that presented some challenges. And that that challenge was met by an outfit called the Railway Clearing House. So if you bought a ticket from Penzance to Newcastle, you might go over the rails of, of several different companies. So th- it was the Railway Clearing House that undertook the very complex task of understanding how much of the fare that you paid went to each of those companies. So by the end of the 19th century, it was an incredibly complex process running the railways to make sure that all of these independent companies actually received the amount of money that they were due for the passengers that they carried. Because we can't just assume that people did short hops 
on these little independent lines or on the on the longer branch lines. Was this outfit responsible for helping people plan their trips or just more with the logistics of getting from train to train? No, in terms of planning your journeys, by the 1850s, we start to see the birth of a whole new branch of publishing, which are the railway guidebooks. Many of us are used to and familiar with the Bradshaw Guide that's been much used by Michael Portillo, and a fantastic book it is. Bradshaw is perhaps better known for a comprehensive publication of timetables, but there were many, many guidebooks that were produced. Very often these guidebooks were produced as guides to a specific line. So you might get the guide to the London and Birmingham or the guide to the Great Western Railway. And these publications would tell you about the sites of interest along the line, the beautiful places you could see. Some of them even went into detail of the inns and the hotels you could stay, which were the best, which ones had the facility for having a bath or or, or what have you. And by probably the latter part of the 19th century, the railway companies themselves were getting in on the act and producing their own publicity material. So they recognised by then that actually there was a, a huge amount of money to be made in encouraging people to move around the country. So it wasn't just about moving goods and material. It wasn't just about getting to work. It was about saying, hey, look, come and see what you can experience. Come, you know, come and explore Cornwall or come and visit Hadrian's Wall, for instance, and do it by train. Here's a guidebook. This will tell you how to do it. Pick up your ticket here. And these guidebooks enabled people to plan their journeys. We see some classic examples where railway companies say, you know, if you want to go and see Furness Abbey, then make sure you get off the train here and take the train around the coast there, jump off at this station and have a look around one of the most beautiful ruins in the country. So that, that there's a particularly interesting link with English heritage and, and, and our sites, the sites that we care for, because the railway companies were pushing them as tourist destinations, even in the 19th century, way before the car and, say, the shell guides that we see in the middle of the 20th century. Yes, I believe that Audley End is one of the stations that uh, you can get off at and go and visit Audley End House fairly easily. Um, I'm sure there are a couple of others you could probably mention tied in with English heritage properties. Yes, there are a lot of stations that people could have used to see properties that are now cared for by English heritage. But perhaps most common was that you would get off at the station and then a local wagoner or cab would take you to where you wanted to go. The final miles would be horse-drawn, but it really didn't stop the railways from plugging these places. Lindisfarne is covered and Berwick, Dunstanborough Castle, some of the more sort of -of out-of-the-way places are covered. And indeed, the Great Western Railway was really quick to promote visiting the abbeys, castles, as well as the prehistoric sites right throughout the West Country and down and down into Cornwall. We covered earlier railway mania and the speculation that went into building lots of track which didn't necessarily get built. But when was the real peak in rail travel? Well, I would say it was probably in the 1900s, just before the First World War, that we see a railway network that is at its greatest extent. And really, it, it never quite came back to that level in the interwar period. It's not unfettered growth as we move through, but certainly that sort of period up to 1914 was very much a kind of golden age of rail travel. 
there were a lot of developments within the 20s and the, and the, and the 30s. But by that time, I think there'd been some, certainly some challenges that were being recognised in the financial sustainability, the viability of, of working with so many different companies, which is why we see in 1923 that 123 independent companies become four. They become the big four railway companies to try and simplify things and make things much more sustainable. And then, of course, after the Second World War, we see the creation of a, of a nationalised railway industry, a single one. So we go from a whole series of small independent outfits and it's sort of gradually through a series of mergers, we end up with a single one. What was to become British Rail? When do we start seeing commuters travelling to work in cities, but from further out? Relatively early on, actually, in the, in the middle of the 19th century, we see workers, you know, workers' trains bringing people in. And indeed, you know, that term to commute, I believe, comes from commuting one's fare. So you pay a, a single fare for a period of time and commute your individual daily fare. So it is relatively early on in the bigger cities, of course, in particular in London, that we see workers coming in. Of course, with the introduction of the parliamentary trains, just going a few miles by rail, which might have been quite difficult on a daily basis, becomes relatively, relatively affordable at a penny a mile. A mile. So it is really part of the impact of the railways on, on social life. Of course, their impact wasn't just limited to the world of work. There were so many things that the railways altered people's ability to get hold of fresh fish is a classic example that's used for the social impact of the railways, that the railways enabled fish to be transported quickly without spoiling to inland towns and cities. And so that's something that's forever linked with the development of the, of, of the railway network, along with many other, many other things. What other effects do we have on the landscape particularly? I'm thinking of Obviously, the lines crossing fields, as they would have done, but also tunnels and the work of Isambard Kingdom Brunel as one of the key engineers, and perhaps even viaducts as well. Can you give us a list of some of the great engineering achievements of that period? Well, to be honest, the building of the railways as a whole was a remarkable feat of engineering. And when we think the majority of this took place using explosives, gunpowder, picks and shovels, it is remarkable that it happened at all. We see in the work of the artist John Cook Bourne, who recorded the construction of both the London and Birmingham and the Great Western Railway, just quite what an undertaking this was in terms of engineering. And this work was undertaken by the navvies, the navigators. Now, they weren't created by the railways. The navigators existed in the time of the canals, when they were digging the navigations, the canals. But the navvies were a breed of men unto themselves who were well known, sometimes unfairly, for hard work, hard drinking, who with their blood, sweat and tears actually carved the railways out of the landscape. There were cuttings, there were embankments, there was the construction of viaducts and bridges and tunnels right across the country. I mean, I think particularly wonderful example is, to my mind, has got to be the viaduct and the Settle and Carlisle Railway. But actually, the country is full of smaller examples that really, when you look at them, are wonderful. They're remarkable examples of what could be built at the time with animal power and, and 
the power of individuals. We're not seeing the use of large machines. It's very often men with wheelbarrows who are digging this out with the help of horses and ponies. The building of the railway network was a remarkable achievement that took place in a relatively short space of time. And we need to bear in mind that when we travel from London to Birmingham, when we travel from Manchester down to Cardiff, that stretches of that line are still running directly on engineering, which is in some places 150, maybe 180 years old. It's remarkable that this infrastructure is still in place. Time travelling in a way. Absolutely. I mean, it, it gives you a real sense of the achievements of two centuries ago. And that I think it changed people's perceptions of space and time. It was a time where you could get from A to B and back again within a day. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's some really tragic examples of how what was seen as the annihilation of space and time that the railways brought about, um, how the interaction of the railways and individuals sometimes was quite problematic. At the opening of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway in 1830, a local MP, William Huskisson, was killed. He was a relatively elderly individual, but he was struck by the train. Chances are he was standing on the tracks watching the approaching train, but was not cognizant of quite how fast this unknown piece of technology was actually moving and, and, and miscalculated and was struck by the train. And there are other examples of where people are sort of mesmerised looking at this thing and, and they don't quite realise how quickly it's moving. 12 miles an hour was like, it was a dizzying pace for the first time ever. It was the railways that enabled people to move away from this idea of what we might call organic power. Previously, you went as fast as the wind blew, you went as fast as the river flowed, you went as fast as the horse could gallop, trot or canter. You went as fast as you could walk for as long as you could do it. With steam locomotives, suddenly there was mechanical power that could go at speeds that were unimaginable. And that caused a whole load of concern about what it would actually do to the body. If you were travelling at 20 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour, you might suffer from something called railway spine because of all the rattling and the jangling on the line there. So there was a whole other raft of anxieties there about what it would actually do to your body. That's really interesting how people thought about it at the time. They didn't have a frame of reference. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of domestic tourism aspect as well. You touched on how you could sort of visit locations that were interesting thanks to a Bradshaw's guidebook. What historic sites were popular to visit by rail in the Victorian times? Well, as we move towards the latter part of the 19th century, when the railway companies were really getting their publications, their advertising into gear, effectively what you're looking at is the English Heritage Handbook. <laughs> Almost all of the sites apart from the sort of smaller prehistoric ones, which weren't quite as on vogue at the time, are included in one or other of the railway company's guidebooks. Of course, one of the problems is, you see, with so many different railway companies, you have to look at lots and lots of different guidebooks to be able to pull them all out, whereas the English Heritage Handbook is a fantastic one-stop shop. But um, if we go back up to the north, we can see that from... York up to Berwick, there is a long line of sites that are historic sites that are now cared for by English heritage. I mentioned some of them already, but Revo and Barnard Castle are all included in, the, in there as well. The Great Western Railway in the 1920s were really keen to push the kind of historic 
nature of the landscape that they travelled through, and they produced some wonderful volumes, three in particular, one on abbeys, one on castles, and one on cathedrals. Big volumes, two, three inches thick, beautifully written by recognised scholars, and fantastically illustrated throughout. And it was all about demonstrating the wonderful sort of antiquities that you could experience by travelling on their line. It was a very sophisticated operation and one that I think would not be in any way unfamiliar to somebody leafing through the English Heritage Handbook thinking about where they might go. We've talked about the historic aspects, the domestic tourism side of rail travel, but obviously there's the onset of the First and Second World Wars in the 20th century. Can you describe how the role of the railways changes, adapts during those periods? Yeah, of course. During both world wars, it was hugely important to move ammunition, materiel and troops around the country, perhaps taking soldiers to docks to travel to various theatres of war, moving ammunition to where it was needed, again to be shipped over or for for protection of individual sites. And the railways played a fundamental part. In the Second World War, there's some incredible photographs of tank trains, so trains transporting tanks down to the south of England in advance of operations there. I mean, this just couldn't have been practically undertaken without the railways. So they were fundamental to the sort of domestic operations. But also when you get over into individual theatres of conflict, let's take France in the First World War, light railways, so sort of temporary, sort of quickly, uh, speedily built railways, were used just behind the front lines, again to move ammunition and men around to where they were needed. So the railways played a really important part during both world wars. And, you know, certainly in the Second World War, there were many questions asked of, is your journey really necessary? The idea being that they wanted to discourage civilian travel to leave capacity on the railways for for military. How have the railways become part of our national identity and national heritage, would you say? Well, very quickly, whilst there was lots of anxiety that we talked about previously about the about the railways, very quickly they became sort of settled within the landscape. And actually, what's more sort of quintessentially countryside than a small branch line with a with a little tank engine puffing along it? You know, it, it comes freighted with so much sort of romance, the country railway. And so I think it really has become part of our, our national heritage. What better example than all of the heritage railways that exist today? Small sections of track that were decommissioned, that have been reopened by volunteers. And every weekend, outside of the situation that we find ourselves in now, every weekend are filled with families travelling on steam trains, run almost entirely by volunteers. And in addition to that, there is a sort of burgeoning area of railway archaeology where the, the monuments, the infrastructure of disused railways are being explored by archaeologists to better understand the origins of the Industrial Revolution. So they provide a fantastic resource today for people wanting to experience a little bit of what it was like in the past. And also we're learning more and more about them as we start to investigate them in a slightly more forensic way using the skills of archaeology. What do you find most interesting about the railways? Well, I think I find the the landscape impacts of the railways fascinating and also the social impact. In particular, I'm interested in how the building of the railways really helped to uncover lots of archaeology that was already in the ground. You know, it's thanks to the railways that we discovered many, many Roman prehistoric and, and medieval sites. So there's there's a really interesting intersection between the railways and archaeology. That's something I really like. And I think that as a spectacle 
the railways remain wonderful and also as a, an example of communal travel public transport there's something really good about that and something that you know we go on a journey together when we go on a train and i think that's something to be um that's something to be cherished bearing in mind the romantic and communal aspect of traveling by train perhaps as a tourist that's probably one of the best ways when you use the, the train to cross the country you can really see the country what would you say is the legacy of Britain's rail network on travel and tourism here and overseas? Because we were really early pioneers, weren't we, of the technology? Absolutely. There's some very interesting threads to follow here because the railways was something that we very quickly, through the means of empire, exported to many other countries, whether they were necessarily desirous of them or not. And so actually one of the legacies is the railway networks that we see in many, in many other countries around the world. So that's certainly something, certainly something to think about. Within this country, I think that their impact on travel and tourism is that it really kick-started what could be termed as discretionary mobility and made that available to many more people, by which I guess I mean tourism. Tourism, of course, always existed, but it wasn't necessarily always that easy to move around the country. And the railways enabled that. They produced a huge literature and a huge appetite for exploring domestically, for exploring the, the sites and the monuments within England and indeed, of course, within Britain and Ireland as well. And that is something that was very much picked up on by the car manufacturers and outfits such as Shell in the 20th century, which is built on from there. So I would say personally that it's had a huge impact on sort of turning the spotlight on the beautiful landscapes and places within this country and providing a way for people to to explore those. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To discover more about how English Heritage is exploring English history this year, head to the English Heritage website and search for Voices of England. Next week, we're learning how to party like it's the 1930s at Eltham Palace and Gardens in London. Stephen and Virginia Courtauld are immensely wealthy. They're, they're socialites. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>